Because in bars, I'm like what you're trying to accomplish that push you and the team to be thinking really hard about why are we investing in these aspects of business? Because it's kind of easy to get sucked into, you know, really competitive spaces that, you know, yeah, it'd be easier, but it will also be less valuable. And so if you're going to do something, and most companies take eight to 10 years anyways, you might as well end up with something that's worthwhile, right? <laughs> and, you know, honestly, I think that that's what we try to accomplish. And it's, it stopped us from doing a lot of things that just weren't either commercially true or would have been. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is part two of our interview with David Kidder. David, we've we've had an interesting time here because we recorded a part two already and then decided that we wanted to re-record a part two. Thinking about uh, just kind of our couple of conversations since part one, any reflections on any of that before we jump into some other subjects? You know, we, we talked a little bit while well, fast through the five lenses, you know, that the, the sort of way to discover the need in the world and then what your proprietary gift is. And I think we started to have a lot of candor around, you know, valuing, you know, what you believe in and care about most deeply, especially when you're trying to, build a company or create growth or, you know, change your life. And I think, I think that's one of the key takeaways from that first part was making sure that those things are true, right, about you and about how deeply you care about it. I inevitably found that the things I was chasing, so to speak, market success or company success, really in the end didn't work because it wasn't anchored in a truth about me or a truth about how much I cared. It was more about I cared from the outside in versus the inside out. You know, I'm thinking about, you know, as part of that conversation, I had to come to grips with some things for me that I think I desperately wanted to believe as an entrepreneur. And as a result of some of your analysis, I had to maybe take a look or a deeper look in the mirror and and think about like how much of that is true and how much of that is wishful thinking. Why do you think that is so hard for entrepreneurs or overly optimistic people to do sometimes? Because I found it hard, but ultimately super, super helpful. And I'm like really grateful to you for it. Well, it's kind of to say that I think, I think, you know, we went there, right, really quickly, which I think is important. And, and I've had that happen for people, you know, sharing thoughts on me. I think, you know, I think we are kind of never satisfied sometimes with the truths about ourselves. It's the, you know, when I get this, I'll be a better person. I'll feel better about myself. And, you know, when you get to the top, you realize there's nothing there. And so kind of falling in love with the journey, the kind of where we spend most of our time is in the grind and that valley of who we're becoming as opposed to the outcome. Inevitably, we often what we try to achieve as a company or a startup or a, or success, however you define it, is typically covering something about us, right? It's a covering of something we want to get right that will make us feel whole, right? And the problem with that is that it actually does the opposite job, which is it only typically validates a weakness <laughs> as opposed to like coming from a place of strength. And sometimes we just don't like the answer. We don't like the fact that we're really good at something that maybe we don't think is, is, has enough uh, stature in the world or you know is, is not as good as someone else's giftedness. You know? And therefore we try to you know, build, build a company to fill up that gap. And listen, I think we all struggle with this. I think I have too. I think I've, you know, pursued things that were more about signaling about me or that rather than really playing to my a strength that's true about me. And 
they kind of sometimes don't like those strings. So that string's not good enough. It needs to be better or it needs to be more technical or it needs to be in a, a more competitive arena or whatever, right? And, and in the end, it's like, you know, you know, when you really do and focus on needs in the world that you're deeply gifted in doing, your success is, however you measure, is, can always be extraordinary. And, you know, God forbid you be happy and for a very long time in your life doing something you deeply care about. As a lot of people have success who are miserable. So, because they pursue the wrong things. So I guess my question for you there is for folks who are maybe above average at a number of things, what kind of ideas would you give for sorting through the like, you can do that at a pretty high level versus that's the thing you were born to do? How do you, how do you think people can sort through that and, and really, you know, pull back to that unique gift, that, that thing that's special for them? What, what could be some guides for people recognizing it within themselves? Well, I mean, I, the, to me, the signal of where you spend your time is where every 10 hours feels like one hour right? You have mo- you get lost, you get to a flow state, whether like, let's say it's in, in an Excel spreadsheet or it's public speaking, or it's, you know, it's in a, in a piece of artwork or drawing or whatever it is you're, when that, when you start to have that type of pull, so to speak, the effortless, you're, that's what a flow state is. Um, and so when you're trying, when things have to become, you know, harder than they need to be relative to what a flow state feels like, even though you can do them, there's really a question of, should you do them? And so I think I, I think I, I I have three sons and I really try to, to raise them in with the mindset of like, you know, don't fix yourself. I don't know being well rounded is is really a great use of your time. Like I would rather have them find the one thing or two things that are the best in the world at. And the faster they get to that effortless ten thousand hours, you know, the more likely they're gonna find something in the world they deeply care about and then spend, you know, working hard, of course, spending their life solving it. So I think those are great things. So I, I'm a big fan of quit weaknesses, don't fix yourself, find a flow state, and then hopefully you find something that's really valuable in the world to solve. And if you're really lucky, it'll be, you know, a new need in the world with outside forces. And I think I shared this in the first part of the interview, which was, you know, I asked some of the best entrepreneurs in the world, like to what degree is every dollar in the bank, you know, attributed to good fortune and good timing, i.e. outside forces, things you don't control. They're like, 80%, you know, it's being there when it happens. And so part of being a great entrepreneur is predicting a new need in the world and predicting the outside force of why now, and then not being, you know, dead when it actually happens, right? So all those are things you have to get good at in a confluence, unless you're just like, it's dumb luck. And that happens too. When you think about someone who wants to get better at that skill, what kind of things would you recommend? Well, I mean, I have, I'll speak from my own experience. I have focused on a, a very deep expertise in a very sort of like thin sliced view of like outside forces. So I spent a lot of time thinking about outside forces, right? And then I think about what needs in the world are created because of that. And then really about where, and then, and then I ask the next question, what's my proprietary gift? Why me? And a lot of cases, like, let's say we had to deal with like, you know, really complex, you know, machine learning and AI. I'm probably the wrong guy to solve that. Like I probably could understand it and I could probably market something towards it, but inevitably the person who's going to win that space is born to do it. They have probably have the same skills I have and a PhD in, you know, you know, whatever it is, you know, neural networks from MIT. Like that's the difference is that someone has been caring about that problem for extremely long time and they have a secret they have an insight that they can solve it and they probably have the same giftedness of you with an obsession that you can't replicate so chasing white space and blue ocean stuff i just 
not a huge fan of, 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 of trying to bet your life on those outcomes. So can you give us some examples? Can you talk about what that looked like both here with Bionic now and maybe pick one of your other businesses? Yeah, I mean, you know, back to an easy one because it was, you know, it was a, both an outside force. I mean, the world, you know, there was a movement around entrepreneurship as management. Eric Reese and Steve Blank pioneered that. You know, I've worked closely with Eric and, and Steve to some extent. He's in my last book. He's a wonderful guy. But they sort of created the spark. And I think, you know, I was just very much right place, right time with, with them, but also with some really big executives who wanted to leverage that and build that as a capability. But I also listened really carefully. It wasn't just about making their idea work in the world. And so convincing the world that you're right as a thought leader is probably not effect, as effective as just listening to the need, which is you have, in our view, two fundamental problems. You, know, you, have, you have leadership who doesn't learn, and you have organizations that don't create permission. And so we, we built that in Bionic. We just solved that as a repeatable methodology that exists in the world. It's design thinking. It's lean. It's agile. It's investment portfolios. We brought that together and we pioneered that the movement of growth mindset and growth systems now for the last seven years. So we're probably, and we know this, we truly are a one of one company in the world. You know, we are, we didn't build a company that competes with anyone else. In fact, we can't be them and they can't be us. We're the anti of things. We're the anti McKinsey. We're the anti, we are, we built truly a, a completely novel company because we focused on our strengths and we didn't compete in the same places. We brought the competitors to us. Sorry, we brought the market to us as opposed to going to a market. It's harder, it's longer, but it's a much more defensive position. For other entrepreneurs that I've invested in, I mean, I can think of, of a couple. One, actually, that ended up um, not being successful, but the, but the entrepreneur, I believe, was, was successful. It was a company called Emissary. And they're building expert networks around business development, actually. Try to, how do you get a big deal done with a company? And kind of navigating all the influencers in an organization. And while the idea was incredible, the entrepreneur's journey, his obsession with this, he actually was in the same, he knew Mark Zuckerberg and went to college with him and was part of that kind of racket inside of the, you know, Harvard. But he cared deeply about it. And I just kind of followed him through that journey for many, many years. And, you know, um, they eventually solved the problem, but the marketplace wasn't structured for them. And so that's an example of, you know, all the talent and all the necessary money in the world. And yet still, you know, you know, the market forces just weren't in their favor, but I still, I love their, their team, their journey. Another one of my favorite entrepreneurs is a company I invested in called Wealthy. And Wealthy is run by Lindsay Rosner, Lindsay Rosner, who is just one of the most brilliant and special entrepreneurs I've ever known. You know, the purpose of that company is a managed care company. So that let's say I have a parent who has Alzheimer's or in my case, I have family members who are, who are challenged and I need to support them. I need care coordination, but I need to do that with many people from a long distance. And, you know, the reason why she knows how to solve that problem is because in her early teenage years, her mother got MS. And so she spent the next 30 years living in that problem and put herself through, you know, Harvard and Columbia and just, you know, out of pure will and managed her relationship at a distance with her mom, who she cared for and sadly passed away, you know, I think two years ago. But the purpose of that company, which was solved six, built eight years ago, was really to solve a need that she knew with a mind, a beautiful mind that cared more deeply and built a purpose-driven company that is impossible to replicate. And I just think that those, those are just cases that you, you back the entrepreneur because they have a gift, they understand the need, and they're born to do it. So those are just a couple examples of where it worked and where it didn't. 
but that same spark, one with outside force and one with a purpose. And can you talk about the same things again, both for, for clickable and smart rate, and maybe just give people a, a quick review of what those businesses were and then how it applied when you were doing them? So in the case of smart rate, clickable. So in the case of smart rate, we were chasing technology. It was also during just the end of the dot-com boom. And we, you know, it was a venture-backed SaaS company in the learning space. So imagine like Google Alerts, but for mobile devices when mobile devices just began, WAP devices. So we were very early. So the outside force was more message-to-moment marketing. So Tibco and Instanet and those sort of things back, back in the early 2000s. But the outside force, the demand for this was still in the early stages. I mean, the iPhone didn't come out until, I don't know, eight, or seven, seven eight years later. Yeah, yeah, 2009. So in any case, we, we built the company. We had to pivot many times. We raised about $5 million in venture. We ended up selling the company for a little under $40 million and almost twice as much about two months before. But the dot-com crash had just begun. A crazy story about that, longer, longer nature. But the purpose of that company was really about, was really web-based. And so I think in that case, I was sort of chasing technology and in the marketplace, honestly. Born to do it was in question in a way. And despite our, the fact that we had success, I think the obsession question was really out in front of the company. And then it was while it was a successful exit, I took a couple of years off and began investing and, and built another company, getting the band back together. In this case, a kind of a similar outcome. This case, it was analytics based on message to moment, but looking at across the APIs. In this case, it was Google and, and Yahoo and Microsoft, three search engines, incredibly complex. And what we try to do is we patented a thing called an ACT engine, an actual analytic engine that tells you how you're doing and what you need to do every day to be, you know, to be successful in that. And we were, you know, right in on time. It was right at the beginning of Google's run in, in 2007. They were probably 15, 20 billion. Now they're 100. But, and we raised a lot of money fast, you know, 12 and 20 million in like, you know, 12, 14 months. And, you know, and then, and not, and then again, not for four years. We didn't raise money for years as we try to make this business work. But we, what we learned out of that is, is, is the lesson of focus. And we ended up building really two companies at once. We did a strategic partnership with a big bank, and they gave us a lot of money to solve their problem. And it took us away from the customer problem, which we began with. And had we probably stayed focused on that single customer problem with our patented act engine and those things, I think the company would have been a much, you know, an extraordinary success relative to relative to the outcome because the technology, the culture, and the obsession was there. But we lost focus of the problem. We ended up building what I like to refer to as a beautiful Siamese twin-headed kid. It's like a, it's handsome and beautiful and smart, but you're the only parent in the world that could love or ever wants to own this thing because ultimately you're solving two markets at once. And for us, you know, we had to basically, you know, take a successful, handsome child and rip it in half. So it's an ugly metaphor, but it was, it was true. We had to sell one piece back to our partner because they were focused on the SMB marketplace because they pivoted there. And we were going up market with a completely different problem set. So same marketplace, very different outcomes. And um, we ended up merging that company and then I stepped out. But it was, uh, you know, a six, six year run to discover that truth. But what it led to was really this question of like, why didn't I know that? Like, how did I not know the, the lesson of focus? And so I went out and started interviewing during that so chapter of selling the company that became the startup playbook and has led to Bionic and, you know, the full, full recovery of, of all of those painful wins and losses. But because 
it was out of the curiosity. It was out of the, you know, why didn't I know that question that began this journey that ultimately ended up in what is now a 20 plus million bootstrap startup that is uh, one of one in the world. So everything kind of is a gift to every part chapter of the journey if you're always learning. And I think that was the lesson in all of it is that success sometimes is a bad educator. And it's in the becoming that grind that teaches you who you are to the world and the need that you can solve. You know, so I'm loving the book Startup Playbook so much. Since since recording part one, I've listened to like three quarters of the book. I got, you know, my Kindle doing robot voice reading it to me these days. I, I actually have an author question for you. So it's interesting to hear that that's how you led to this book because I, I really enjoy this book. To me, I really like the way you did the book because I'm getting so much straight from the horse's mouth. I'm getting so much directly from the entrepreneur, but I honestly don't love some of the interview books that don't have anything from the author, where it's like literally just a transcription of, you know, essays almost from some from some people. I'm interested in how you navigated the choice of how much to intro, how much to add in that that ratio of how much David to the to the entrepreneur in that book. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting to ask that question. I was just at an interview with a fairly famous writer yesterday and who's a thought leader, like a true thought leader. And I'm more of like a synthesizer. Like I, I'm much more interested in what other people have to say, their advice, their wisdom, and learning from it. And um, the only really powerful original thing that was written in the Startup Playbook that was truly from my heart and mind was the introduction. Was like, and that's through that, you know, it was really the last flight from San Francisco to New York after I finished the book, finished doing the interviews for it. You know, it's 300 hours over a period of, you know, a year and a half, two years. And I was like, what am I learning? And it was, what I learned was, is that, you know, everybody's basically saying the same thing that came down to these five lenses, how to bet your life. And, and I just wrote it literally in one six hour flight. And that became, you know, the iconic ideas that now are part of Bionic, but also largely been adopted in a lot of venture models now. And I see them in writing, you know, painkillers, not vitamins and proprietary gift. And they're in our partners or on zombies. And so they've been a, were a real gift to me. But the synthesis was really original thinking. I just honestly have never thought I want to be out in front with like, you know, ideas that really weren't built on the minds and of other people's experience. I don't have maybe I don't have that much confidence or maybe I think I'm just a bad thought leader. But that's just how I like to learn and how I like to share. So but in any case, the book was really a fantastic tool set that I return to all the time. You have the every one of those entrepreneurs from Robin, Ch- you know, uh, Robin Chase to Sarah Blakely to Elon Musk to Reed Hoff and others, all are about how they think and how they pick their ideas, how they execute. And then there's this B role, which is their best advice across 20 different aspects of building a company, hiring, firing, manage your board, how to manage yourself, how to manage failure, fear, like the job, right? And when you're drawing from your gut instincts, you're making decisions, you have to ask yourself, like, where is this coming from? Like, is this instinct mine? Is it right? Because in most cases, like, whatever challenge your business is facing, in most cases, has been solved successfully, just not by you. (laughs) So that's the problem is like, how can I just get the answer in me so I don't have to spend the next year or two flailing around, lighting my money on fire, most likely failing? And that's when you really blow it down is like, do I know the right question and can I get the right answer? And when you get in trouble, like you like cut your pinky off when you have a couple hundred employees to make the right decision. But ultimately, that's all it is, is am I making the right decision, asking the right question about my business and where we are? And then asking who successfully solved this so I can get the answer right. Otherwise, you're learning at your own nickel and your own clock, which is sort of terrifying. 
You know, I, I want to go back. That gives me a lot of thoughts, but I want to go back to something you said earlier about if you can come up with your own thing and bring the market to you, it takes longer and is harder, but is more valuable in the end. Having done that with Bionic, can you give some advice for other folks who want to do that in other industries? Well, I, I, can, I can give you other people's good advice that have been given to me. So one of my investors, my last company was, you know, Peter Thiel and Brian Singerman out of the Founders Fund, which I'm an LP, one of their funds. And, you know, Peter always talks about, you know, competition is for losers, right? Why build a company that's chasing other people's press releases? Like, don't suffer from the cynic. You'd be aware of it. But ultimately, if, if you're so deep in the need and you're building a company, you shouldn't be guided by that. You should be building a company that has no competitors. And so, like, how do you win? If you're going to win a marketplace, how do you win a new marketplace, but you win all of it? And when you start to begin in that mindset, it really creates, you know, lenses and bars on, like, what you're trying to accomplish that push you and the team to be thinking really hard about why are we investing in these aspects of the business? Because it's kind of easy to get sucked into, you know, really competitive spaces that, you know, yeah, it'd be easier, but it will also be less valuable. And so if you're going to do something, and most companies take eight to 10 years anyways, you might as well end up with something that's worthwhile, right? <laughs> and, you know, honestly, I think that that's what we try to accomplish. And it's it stopped us from doing a lot of things that just weren't either commercially true or would have been incrementally better than anyone else. And that's just ultimately not worth it, I think, if you're trying to really make change in the world and create value for yourself and others. So I guess my question is on decision-making criteria. That, that idea of different but valuable, you know, because there's, there's a lot that's like just different but crazy, right? So this idea of if, you're, if you are, you know, like zero to one, Peter Thiel, you know what I mean? And there isn't just some model to follow of the other guys who did it just like this. What kind of tools or what kind of ideas do you have for how to give yourself a gut check when you're making something new, when there's not a paint by number to follow of, you know, should I trust my gut on this one or not, you know? Well, the answer typically is in the relationship you have with the customer. In my view, it's, it's you're, you're, you are solving something that is so novel and so powerful that they are discovering it for the first time themselves, right? They're like, I didn't know I needed blank, but that's the answer to all of these ills, right? I didn't know I, I didn't know I needed, you know, to transform, you know, the way I think and the way I work to produce growth repeatably. I didn't know you could build, you know, repeatable growth engine in the same way you could do that with efficiency, for example, like lean manufacturing, Six Sigma, like, what if I could have always on growth in the same way I could create always on optimization efficiency? Like that's kind of shocking, right? To think about that because you would think about it as an increment. Like if you could have, you could just turn on growth anytime you wanted. Why wouldn't you just do it all the time? Well, sometimes you don't want to. So like the point is like that, that's sort of a, a completely new concept in the world as, as obvious as it is to us. It's not obvious to everyone who's in sitting in the seat of the fortune 500, they need growth. And I had no idea I could build a system that could make it available to me all the time, like water. So, but so like that, like that's an example, like, or I didn't know I could, you know, in the context of our conversations, I didn't know I could, you know, preserve 80% of my wealth and still, you know, grow it at a hundred percent year over year because of the way you created a solution to that need, which is I worked so hard to keep, to create this wealth. Can I keep it? And still have enough to go take huge risk in my life. Like that's that's not about financial instruments because they don't even care about the instrument. They are the risk. They are the instrument. You're just providing the solution so they can keep doing what they're doing. That's so if you go in and pitching someone on a bunch of things that they don't care about, 
like tools or financing or whatever it is. They're not interested in that. They're interested in living in a de-risk life that creates all the options to create risk for them. So like that, that to me is the understanding of the problem and the person so clearly and deeply that ultimately it's not about the tech. It's not about the real estate. It's not about the, it's about the need and how you're solving it in a novel way. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And I know we're kind of winding down for time, but I want to go back to, to what you're doing at Bionic and this always on growth. When you have to dumb it down, when you're explaining to people what it is that you're doing there, what are, what are the key elements? What are the key building blocks that your program is going to help them install in their business? Well, I mean, one is, is that, you know, you, I used to hate the word process, but large organizations won't make changes that don't drive from incentives. They need systems and incentives to drive change. So if you're a big-to-bigger organization, that huge scalable thing is fundamentally about planning and de-risking and efficiency, it can't create growth because that's ultimately what it's paying for. It may, it may pay for a little growth. So the question is, is, does, is the organization set up in the how to produce growth? And so here's the challenge with that is that when you look at growth returns, 70% of all the money you make in investing in growth comes from 7% of the capital you deploy. So I make 100 bets where I spend 10 million or 100 million, 7% of that effort is going to create all the returns effectively. When I go back to the beginning, I say, well, why did I make those investments, the 7 out of 100 or the 7% of capital that led to all these returns? They have two criteria. One is high conviction, i.e. why us and why now, outside forces and giftedness. And number two is non-consensus. You make all of your money from ideas with the highest disagreement rate. So conversely... If you have consensus and you're going for growth, you're basically screwed. So when you wrap your head around this as a leader and you think about, well, wow, I need to be thinking and working differently. You need a model. You need a how. You don't have an ideas problem, typically. You don't have a talent problem, typically. You don't have a money problem, almost in every case. It is the how. Your machine, your big to bigger efficiency, de-risking planning model that can only look at the total rest of the marketplace of the world is at war with growth. So the good news is we have advanced MBAs for administrating that. Baker scholars, they're awesome at doing that job. We also have a form of management that's existed for 30 years that produces hundreds of billions of dollars of value a year, which is called venture capital and entrepreneurship. And they're literally forms of management. And the problem is the systems to invest, discover, validate, and build, that is a way of working, have never existed before in an integrated way. And we solved that. And we built something called the Growth OS, which combines growth boards that can do non-consensus, high-conviction investing in portfolios that are chasing the total addressable problems and needs of the world and not the markets, that learn to create those portfolios, learn to validate them like entrepreneurs, and learn to build them from zero to 100 million revenue repeatedly. And so our partners aren't launching five big, you know, big, big consulting firm ideas a year that cost 50 million bucks that almost always fail. They're launching hundreds across all the P&Ls as a way of working. They're just solutions in search of the need or problem as a way of working. And they have a 90% failure rate, but they launch a couple dozen, multiple hundred million dollar bets a year. And they do the same thing the next year and the same thing the next year and the same thing the next year. And it just stacks. So our model, the growth OS is the management how to do the work of growth on an always on basis in the same way a CEO leads efficiency and lean manufacturing and Six Sigma and manages the big to bigger so that it, you know, de-risks. This is about creating growth risk and managing it. So um, assuming that someone, they go, buy, they go to Amazon, they buy your book, New to Big, which everybody should do. I already did it myself. They, you know, they build the incentives and they have the programs and they're, they've got these staff who, 
you know, they weren't necessarily born entrepreneurs. That's why, that's why they went and got a degree and that's why they have a job inside of an organization. Yeah. But in order to get the most out of these processes, we need to release as much entrepreneurship as, it, as is actually in them. Any advice for, for managers and leaders who are trying to help staff wait, you know, wake that part up inside of themselves? Yeah, well, certainly there's a skill issue. There's also talent selection, but there's also leadership here. I mean, when you go into an organization and you ask them, hey, you know, do we have an employee problem? Because immediately leadership is like, well, we need to Six Sigma everybody. We need to teach lean everywhere. Like, can you go and ask those people that question? They're like, uh, we don't have an instruction problem. We have a leadership problem. They don't invest in non-consensus, high conviction portfolio. They, they, the permission doesn't exist. They ultimately want... They're taking their big to bigger metrics and those answers, the addiction of being right, and they're bringing it into things they're literally just learning. So how do you break the addiction of being right and you help them think and look through a different set of lenses so they can find, as you know, the five, the five lenses, proprietary gift, extreme focus, painkiller, totally different set of things that are not financial in the beginning. So once you learn the skill, great VCs invest in great entrepreneurs to create unfair advantage, not to subordinate them. And great entrepreneurs take money from great VCs to not be told what to do, but to discover together. They're here to, they're, their job is to bring the commercial truth to their organization. If your organization doesn't tell you the truth and it's fundamentally intellectually dishonest, it's because your cost of failure is too high. So you need a totally new system to lower the cost of failure so people can tell you the truth because they, need, they took 10 shots on goal and not one that they had to make right, which goes full circle to your prior conversation, which is what did you learn about investing in companies is that never invest in someone who loves their idea, ever. They're bound to fail because they're trying to make their idea work. As opposed Instead to being obsessed, to obsessed with the problem with complete permission to solve it. Those conditions and those mindsets and systems are fundamentally the skill we're talking about. But building them so they're repeatable, so ultimately billions go through it, is the model and the coaching, the skill, and the math that we bring to be able to do this. I'll say this last thing, which is not everybody has to be an entrepreneur, this elusive concept. In fact, very few are built, born to do it. In fact, it's almost all skill in my view. You put 100 kids in our class right? We can tell in five minutes who can draw. You could suck at drawing. I could suck at drawing. You know, you see it. It's, it's completely observable. And 95% of people should not do the job. But the 5% who are born to do it, we can find them and we can skill them and we can scale them. It's special forces for growth. You don't need the whole company. You have a Navy and a special forces for a reason. One takes beaches, one takes countries. So the model discovers a lot of the answers to the questions you're asking, but does it at scale. You know, one of the things you said there, I feel like is so important. I'd love to have you repeat it. Can you go back to this idea of if you fall in love with your idea too much, that you're going to fail because you're going to be too stuck on it versus being, being obsessed with your idea versus being obsessed with the problem? Can you, can you go back on that? Yeah, I mean, there, there, I think there's, I mean, we've talked about this before about fear versus abundance. You know, like when you're trying to make your idea work, it comes from a place of fear. Abundance comes from a place of, you know, possibility and permission. So when I walk, I'm talking to a customer, I'm completely open to whatever the answer is. I'm actually listening and I'm thinking about how to solve it as opposed to selling and convincing them that you should use error. And that's where, you know, Elon said, wishful thinking is the enemy. That's where it comes from. And I, I've been guilty of this in my past. I get so passionate. I have such conviction that the world's going to be right. And, you know, I'm not listening. I'm not the world's best listener, as you can probably tell. So I have to put people around me that begin with the question. So you're always discovering. So these, you know, the reason why the signals of, you know, at some point in the relationship with solving a problem, the customer, 
you stop selling and they start buying, there's a condition that happens in you. That is when it begins to realize like, ah, now I'm solving that what they care about. And when you have that, and then you ask yourself, well, how would we solve it? Am I trying to make my technology work? Am I trying to make my network work, my skill, my friends? Like, nope. It doesn't matter if it's like AI or a box of electrical eels, right? <laughs> Whatever is the answer is the answer, right? Who cares? And if you care enough about what do you care? It's like, you, if you're embarrassed by the answer, you're probably in the wrong business. You don't like it because it, it, it's not smart enough. Well, if, if that's the answer, that's the answer. The point is you care most, you care so deeply about them that you actually solve the need and you repeat it and you make that, that the perfect model as opposed to, you know, trying to solve some deeper issue that you're suffering from. I love it. Well, I, I'm going to, I'm going to do my same last question again to wrap it up here. What question didn't I ask? I, I think the one is, is just around the, probably the deepest struggle for entrepreneurs. Like I think about what's the hardest part of the job. And I think that it's, everyone says being an entrepreneur is like being alone, right? And ultimately, that's not wrong, right? You, you, when you look at the distance between yourself and the team and making the hard choices, you know, and the timing of those choices and being first in them, it's really hard. And inevitably, you can't please everybody that you're going to disappoint people and have to deal with that too. So I think the hardest part is just holding the space that holds the company and there's really just you in it, <laughs> Because the company is always a direct reflection of you and its weaknesses and strengths are really where you're going to have to stare down some really hard truths about yourself because if the company's not working and you know why, it's probably because you're not working and it reflects that. And so you got to fix it. And that begins in the interior life of you, not the company. And doing that work is probably one of the hardest parts of all of this is that you blame the company for something that's probably failing in you and you haven't done the work. So I would say that was probably the one question I think is underneath it all. It's why, you know, things are here to teach us lessons and you keep repeating until it teaches you. And uh, companies are great teachers. That's great. Well, everybody uh, go to Amazon, get your copy of new to big, go to davidkinder.com, learn about his speaking and other opportunities, check out bionic and, and David, thanks for all the time. This has been great. Yeah. Very grateful. Jess. I've loved our conversations and I know we have many more. Okay. Bye everyone. <laughs>